We have moved into the run-up to Christmas. Uh, I, I can tell that we're in the run-up to Christmas. Here, look, that's my new graphic. Yeah, that's for December. The king is coming. I can tell we're in the run-up to Christmas because, as I've hinted at, my diary is getting displeasingly full. Uh, I'm already uh, struggling to fit in people, uh, different meetings that I'm leading in the evening, which is great. It's great to have a chance to go and to talk to schools and to talk to uh, scouts about Jesus and do all the other things that we're doing. And it's a real blessing, but it does indicate to me that I've, in, I've entered the season. I can tell because every time I go to Garson's Farm, uh, you, you, there's, a, there's a kind of sweet spot just outside the restaurant where you can stand in that's like a dystopian nightmare. Uh, there's this kind of cacophony of competing Christmas and show tunes that all merge into one discordant mess. And it's very much what I imagine my hell would be like if it were originally tailored for me. And uh, I've noticed as well that although it's quite hackneyed to comment on it, uh, that uh, the decorations of the shops have already started. I, there's a number of memes about this. These are two of my favourites. This is from Facebook. There's a, you can tell something about me and my, uh, my generation. And there's a Robin singing, We wish you a Merry Christmas, and Batman slaps him and says, No, it's November. You may not sing Christmas carols. Uh, and there's Picard. This is from Star Trek, The Next Generation. If you weren't around in the 1980s, don't worry. It was big. Uh, he says, When I see people celebrating Christmas, it's not even close to December. I've been feeling like this for a couple of months now. Partly because for me, it's like someone constantly reminding me you've got a massive, very busy period at work coming up, and it's like they want to start it even earlier and earlier and earlier. And the endless memes that go around about this, these are not Christian memes. They're people ex- expressing how they, that sense of slight irritation about the pressure to celebrate Christmas earlier. Uh, it leads me sometimes to think about why we find that a problem, right? It's like one of those... Uh, it's a bit like a child who eats loads of sweets, and they're like, but I like sweets, so why do I feel sick when I eat them all? You know, but they're so good for me, I love them, I feel great when I have them, so why don't I just eat sweets? You know, you, every parent who's had a child has had that conversation about that at some point. And the reason I think it seems so jarring, you know, we like Christmas, we like celebrating, we like chocolate, so why do we get annoyed when it turns up in the middle of June, is... Besides the warm weather outside, that we go straight from zero to full Christmas, Christmas Max, I think, Chris Max, without anything in between. It's like a car where you try and accelerate from naught to 90, you end up destroying the gearbox. And uh, there's no period of preparation. That's what I think I find jarring. It's like I go from October, I'm going on quite nicely. November, I enter November, I'm going on quite nicely. And then all of a sudden, it's just until the 25th of December when it will come down again. And there's nothing in between. To put it another way, there's no fasting before the feasting. But traditionally, when there would be feasts, there would be a period of fasting first. You wouldn't just go straight into the feasting. It's like having nothing but dessert. Now that might sound like paradise, but if you don't have anything else that's nutritious first, you end up being very, very poorly indeed. And after a while you get sick of it. Literally. Instinctively, we don't feel ready. And the answer to this is Advent. Now, I'm not expecting Waitrose to start doing Advent. That would be a slightly odd choice, although maybe in the 
when the eschaton comes, and Waitrose is still there, as I'm sure it will be in heaven, uh, they... <laughs> I've got, had a whole list of puns. I'm not going to do the puns. <laughs> the answer for the church is Advent. That we don't go straight to Christmas. That it's not like you get to December and then we flip the switch and we're doing Away in a Manger every week. It... Uh, we take time to prepare ourselves and actually to think through. And the Christmas, that's not because we don't like Christmas, it's actually because we really do like Christmas. And we want to get ourselves ready, we want to think about what Christmas is actually about. Uh, we don't require fasting in our tradition. Um, I don't think it's a good idea to require fasting, but the traditions that do encourage it are onto something. What they think, what they, the whole idea behind uh, a, a kind of Advent fast, if you go to a Greek Orthodox church, for example, they won't be eating meat all the way through December, or whatever it is for Greek Orthodox. Uh, they won't eat uh, animal products. They basically live as vegans, and they also won't uh, use olive oil. They basically deny themselves the, the things that were luxuries in the ancient world. It's how the tradition developed. Because you're then going to celebrate this enormous feast at the end of it, and you want to have a period of reflection beforehand. Actually, for a lot of parenting websites, if you go for Christian parenting websites, they come up with alternative plans of ways you can encourage children to actually think about other people for the period of Advent, because on Christmas Day they're going to be gorged with presents. And if you don't have that period of preparation first, then quickly the festival loses its meaning. It's not then a celebration of something that's been given to you, it becomes an entitlement that is uh, disparaged, or that we just become blasé about. You know, we don't require fasting. We believe in grace, and uh, if you want to fast, we encourage you to fast, but we don't require it, there's no rule. But I would encourage you to be thinking about a way that you can make December meaningful as a preparation for Christmas. It might be looking for someone to bless, or praying, or reading through uh, one of the uh, Old Testament passages, or doing something. You know, giving up something for Lent has become a kind of cliche, hasn't it? But actually there's something to that, saying I'm going to deny myself something for a period of time, so that when I get blessed, it's more meaningful to me. In church, we're going to spend a few weeks now, next three weeks, looking not at the Christmas story itself, that will be covered in some detail at Christmas services, but at what God said Christmas was supposed to be about before it happened, and how God prepared people for Christmas before it happened. We're going to look at some of the predictions about Christmas that were given hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus was born to see what his birth was expected to be. Uh, I'm going to begin this week by looking at two predictions given by an ancient Jewish prophet called Jeremiah. The reason why this is important for the Christmas story is because if you read in Matthew 2, I'm not putting this on the screen because it's not the main reading, but I just thought I'd share it with you, root in something. Hopefully this will make sense of those little uh, references you get in the, uh, in the New Testament that people don't chase down. In Matthew, and chapter 2, 
and verse 1 and 2, it says this. It says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi, or wise men, or uh, used to be translated kings, it's not strictly kings, uh, from the east came to Jerusalem. Philosophers, essentially. Interestingly, it could be men or women. That's an interesting point, isn't it? Uh, From the east came to Jerusalem and said, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? They were expecting that where this baby would be born at some point, who would be the true king. And we're going to look at the predictions that the Magi, the wise men, the philosophers would have looked at. And then Herod sends his wise men to go and look at and find. We're going to root our discussion in the prophet Jeremiah. He gave these predictions about six to seven hundred years before Jesus was born. Uh, to give you a feel for this. That's how far back we are. We're six, seven hundred years BC in the passage we're looking at. And we're going to look at it in some detail. But here's my summary. This is my one sentence lunchtime summary. I'd like to give this to you so that you can go home and remember at least one thing that I've said. And uh, that hopefully wasn't avoid Garson's farm. It's this, Christmas is God's choice to teach us, save us, and change us through Jesus. Christmas is God's choice to teach us, save us, and change us through Jesus. It's God's choice to teach us, to save us, and to change us through Jesus. That's what this king was expected to do. And we're going to read uh, two of the predictions that uh, they were discussing there in Matthew now. So I'm going to look at Jeremiah uh, chapter 23 and pages five, uh, verses 5 to 6. If you are new to the Bible, it's arranged thematically in the Old Testament. So you get kind of ancient history and myth in the first five books. mixture of law and discussion of very, very ancient ideas and of the story of Israel. Then you get history books in the middle then poetry and wisdom, and then you get prophets. And actually, there's a, if you're wondering how they arrange the prophets, it's not in order of significance, it's actually in order of length. Right? People don't know that. Most of the way the Bible is organised is determined by the length of scrolls in the ancient world. It's organised by length. And Jeremiah is the second of the prophets. So we're looking at page 783. Jeremiah's an interesting guy. He uh, has a job as a priest. Uh, He's a bit like me, except he has better clothes in Jerusalem. And he was a young guy, and he had a job as a priest, but at the same time, he had a mixed role as a prophet. And being a prophet involved being a social commentator, so he would critique the way people lived, and particularly the way the rulers of Israel lived, that they weren't doing justice in the land. And he would make predictions about what was going to happen if they, did, if they carried on behaving in that way. So he's a mixture of, a, if, you get, if you like, a columnist for a newspaper, a religious figure, and somebody who makes predictions about the future, a forecaster. And he purports to speak for God. So God, when, he's, when Jeremiah is speaking, he's very often God speaking through him, saying how God shares what he thinks about stuff. And this is something Jeremiah spoke 
Jeremiah was very often negative because Israel was going in a very bad way and was about to be invaded. You sometimes hear the phrase Jeremiah. Uh, I remember when the banking crisis happened, Vince Cable kept being labelled as a Jeremiah because he turned up on TV with an incredibly long face. He looked very miserable and glum. You know Vince Cable's face. I think actually he's quite a happy guy. It's just the way his face falls. And he would make predictions about how the banks were going to fail, and duly did, and how everything was going to be terrible, and it duly was. And he, he, uh, I remember him being interviewed on the Today programme once, came in and he said, people keep labelling me a Jeremiah, and they mean it as an insult. He said, but Jeremiah was right. Right? Jeremiah spends his whole time saying Israel's going to be invaded and taken to Babylon, and actually that happens. And so we have this idea of somebody, he gets caricatured as somebody who's very negative, but he has these moments of hope. What Jeremiah's whole message is, is basically, is things are going disastrously wrong. You're abusing the poor, you're behaving in terrible ways, and God is going to take you into exile. You're going to go to Babylon for a while, particularly the ruling class. He's going to go to Babylon for a while, but there is hope. God will do something about it. And he says this in chapter 23 and verses 5 to 6. He says, the days are coming, declares the Lord. Oh, there we go. When I will raise up for David a righteous branch. A king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called. The Lord, our righteous saviour. Or could be translated, the Lord, our righteousness. Then he comes back to this prediction later in the book. So every so often... Jeremiah will come back to something he said before and repeat it and expand on it. So in uh, chapter 33 and page 797, Jeremiah and his assistants come back to this prediction. They say, no, we stand by this. At this point, Jeremiah has been persecuted fairly badly. He's been put in a, I think this is the point where he's been put in a sewer as a prison. And... uh, even if they haven't got there yet, this is about it. Oh yeah, he's still confined in the courtyard of the gods. So he's in the sewer, and you might still be asking, is God still going to bless Israel, even after they threw the prophets into the sewer? And he says in verse 14, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good promise I made to the people of Israel and Judah. So yeah, this is still really going to happen. However badly you are behaving, God is still determined to fulfill his promise. In those days, and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called, so he's changed it slightly, the Lord our righteous saviour, or the Lord our righteousness. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we want to ask that you would take these ancient words uh, that are removed from us by two and a half thousand years and show them how they still speak today and show us why we still sing them every Christmas. Amen. So Jeremiah brings this prediction. In the midst of everything that's terrible, he brings this prediction that God would send a true and great king. And he describes what this king would be like. That's actually what a righteous branch means. It's uh, a 
an idiom, a, a metaphor, a picture that they used in their language to describe someone who was a true king. A bit like if you were to uh, go outside and it's chucking it down with rain and you say it's raining cats and dogs. It's a metaphor, it's a picture of a really, really bad rainstorm. If you read Jewish literature, this, uh, this phrase, a righteous branch, a branch that does right, is a picture of a true king. Not merely someone who inherits the throne. You see, you can be a king or a queen and not be a true king or queen. This isn't somebody who merely inherits the throne. It's somebody who epitomizes it. Who sums up in themselves what it means to be the king or queen. Jeremiah is predicting something would happen in the future. He's saying this... At this point in the future, God will intervene in Israel's life and he will send a saviour. And this is what Herod and his uh, philosophers and the Eastern philosophers in Matthew 2 are talking about. They come and they say, we've seen all of the things that indicate that this is about to happen. It was predicted six, seven hundred years ago. It's about to happen now. There is this king being born. Where is he? And actually, as we, you will know from the Christmas story, that question ends tragically because Herod is not a true king. He's not a righteous branch. He's somebody who's only interested in maintaining his own power. And so he actually sets to work uh, committing terrible crimes to try and suppress what God has done. So it matters. This... this Prediction matters for the Christmas story. It tells us what it is that Jesus had come to do and who he had come to be. I'm going to point out uh, three things about Christmas and then suggest, three things it tells us about Christmas and then suggest how we should respond to it or how it says we should respond. So the first thing I want you to notice is that Christmas is about grace. Christmas is about grace. Or to put it another way, Christmas is God's choice. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. Christmas isn't first and foremost, I mean I'm sure I'm preaching to the choir to some extent, if I say that Christmas isn't first and foremost about giving presents or having meals. Right? I think most people would accept that, uh, with the possible exception of Waitrose who will be redeemed in the eschaton, as we've said. But it's not actually about all of the celebrations and stuff. That's a relatively uncontroversial thing to say. It's not about how we should treat each other. That's perhaps a less less uncontroversial thing to say, a more controversial thing to say. It's not a celebration of humanity or friendship or family. Although all of those things are good and all of them come in at Christmas, Christmas is not first and foremost about celebrating human relationships. In fact, if anything, Christmas is a time when human relationships are tested to destruction. I can tell you as a lawyer, litigation in January is increased and more bitter, particularly in the family courts. I know I sounded like I was about to tell a joke, that's actually tragic. It's not about a celebration of friendship or family, although those ideas are powerful and they are helpful. Christmas isn't actually first and foremost about us at all. It's not really about humanity. It's about something God has done. 
Christmas is first and foremost about God saying, I will raise up a righteous branch. Now, you might stand back and say, well, Phil, that's it. A debating point to you. Well done. You've scored a pedantic point about Christmas. Excellent work. It's not actually pedantry. It's not insignificant. It's the whole reason why the Christmas story is good news. Because it's God doing it. If we are left with nothing but a celebration of what people are on their own already capable of, then we have nowhere to look for hope except to ourselves, and our record is abject. If we have nowhere to look for hope but to ourselves, then that is no hope at all, because our record is abject. If we, who fight wars and build wealth, who quarrel and quibble, who gossip and goad, who bully and break, are the final word on the world's future, then all we can expect is that it will look like the past. If all we are doing is celebrating who we are, then there is no hope that things will get better. Now that's not to be down on humanity. People are brilliant. They bear the image of God. They are wonderful. They are capable of enormous good. They are crowned with glory and honour. Yet we are also the cause of enormous suffering. If we could save and change ourselves, let me put it that way, we would have done it by now. The truth is we cannot solve the problem because however brilliant we can be, we are the problem. Again, if Christmas is just about us, about a celebration of us, then there isn't that much to celebrate. But actually, Christmas is about God coming. It is about God saying, look, I can see that you are making a mess of my world. Your climate is changing. You pollute the oceans. You kill the animals. You destroy each other. You gossip. You create economic systems that perpetrate injustice. You fight wars against one another. And then when you don't fight wars against one another, you build up states that oppress people. I can see that you do this. And yet I will act. Christmas is the promise, the pledge of God, the action of God, to say in spite of humanity... I am coming in love. This is what we call grace. It's not self-saving. It's divine deliverance. Jeremiah speaks these words in the midst of a situation where the government in his country has become so corrupt that the poor are perishing, there is massive family breakdown, sexual uh, iniquity all over the, literally on the hillsides, People fighting wars, there are uh, people perishing in the streets, there is a, a, a national enemy at the gate waiting to come in. On both sides, you might think, who's the just side in the conflict between Israel and Babylon? There is no just side, they're both terrible nations, and they're go, both going to suffer, and in the midst of that, God says, I will act. That's what we call Grace. It's God's unearned, unfailing, unstoppable love coming to those who don't deserve it. Christmas is God's choice. What does he come to do? He comes to teach us, to show us what it means to be truly human. 
It's funny you get one of the uh, slightly odd phrases in this passage. I will raise up for David, or in the later, the later recapitulation, the days are coming when I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. It's a picture of someone who is born to a line of human beings. Jesus has a family. He is one of us. Um, and if you go to watch Tottenham Hotspur play football, I promise this is the last one of these for this week. If you go to watch Tottenham Hotspur play football, one of the chants that you will hear repeatedly is, he's one of our own. He's one of our own. He's one of our own. Harry Kane, he's one of our own. What they mean is, he came through our system. He's our boy. He's one of us. He's not, you know, we... Spurs fans, we love, our, we love our foreign imports. You know, Christian Eriksen love him. Uh, but there's something different about somebody who's one of you. He's one of our own. Jeremiah is saying that when this king comes, he will be one of our own. He will be one of our own. Christmas is about the birth of a child who is human. Now that might sound stating the blindingly obvious, but we can have two distinct problems in the way we see Jesus. Either we see him as too God and not human, or we see him as too human and not God. And actually, in this passage as we'll see, Jeremiah wants to hold both of those together. Christmas is about the birth of a child who models what a life devoted to justice and doing right looks like. He will do what is just and right in the land. Christmas is about someone coming uh, from us who lives as one of us and can show us what it means to be human. When those wise men come to Herod and say, we understand someone's going to be born as king of the Jews, what they're saying is the great example has been born. Show us where he is so that we can know what we should be like. So that we can know what a life lived in justice and love and righteousness. A life of passion for purity and the poor. For prayer and power of radical, other-centered, hatred-shaking, chain-breaking love looks like. That's Christmas. The king we celebrate at Christmas is worthy of worship because he does what is right and just. He is love. When we worship at Christmas, we're proclaiming the start of a demonstration of what humanity should be. Christmas is God's choice to teach us how to be human. But it's not just to teach us. This is the flip side of the coin. I've set up a dichotomy. If you're interested in how you do uh, public speaking, I told you a minute ago I was going to explain two different ways you can go wrong in seeing Jesus. I've just dealt with the not seeing him as human. Now I'm going to deal with the not seeing him as divine. A king who merely came to show us what we should be like would be of limited worth. I know I can't be like it. But I don't actually need someone to tell me that I am not great. I uh, got unfairly crossed with Ben on the way over here from the youth centre because he wouldn't come and put his shoes on quickly enough. But I know that. But it helps me to see Jesus living and to see how I should behave and what love looks like in action and what compassion looks like. But I know already that I can't live like that. I find it inspiring, I find him attractive, I find it a life that I aspire to, but I know that I can't be like it. 
put it another way, my heart, our hearts are broken. We live in chains. Each of us that bind us to selfishness and self-centeredness. It's not that we're wholly bad. It would be easier if we were. It's easy being wholly bad. Because you never have the struggle to be good. It's not the sense that we can't do anything good. It's the frustration that we can't do it often enough. We know we aspire to be something, and yet we know that we fall short. We are a bit like uh, my favourite Christmas film, and this is going to come up in the next few weeks, so you might as well go and watch it, is The Muppet Christmas Carol. Uh, brilliant film. Went to see The Muppets on stage in London this year. Definitely worth it. Worth every penny of it. Uh, had to interrupt a lecture while I was away at Cliff, a college where I'm doing my Masters, to pester Heather to let me buy tickets for me and the boys to go to the O2. Uh, and uh, brilliant. Best Christmas Carol by a country mile. Uh, is the Muppet Christmas Carol. If you haven't seen it, watch it. And there's this moment where Marley and uh, Marley, I know, in, I know in the book of Christmas Carol it's only one Marley, but this is Statner and Wardorf, the puppets. They come up and they're covered in chains and they sing this song about how they're bound in chains by what they did in their lives. And they sing it to Scrooge. Uh, I'm not going to sing the song to you, it's very funny, you should watch it. We live in chains. It's a picture of living in chains. The reason why Dickens' work is still read now, partly, is because he really nailed something about the human condition. We live in chains because we're captive to things. Even if you lived a completely ethical life, you're still part of a system that's built on oppression. I don't want to bum you out on a Sunday morning, but we live in the prosperous West, in the global south and the majority world, there are people who are paying for the, for the privileges we, we hold and paying unjustly. Now, I'm not saying that to blame you. You can't be blamed. You, do, you can't choose where you're born. You can't choose the system you're born into it. But we profit from it nonetheless. Right? It's part of what it means to be human is to be born into a world that binds you to systems that are oppressive. We're captive to them. That's the point of chains. It's not that you choose the chains. They bind you. We profit from the chains of others. And so we find ourselves in turn bound by those chains. We're in bondage to the powers of darkness that exploit our weakness and our selfishness and bring yet greater suffering to a world that groans and yearns to be free. What do I mean by that? I mean there is such a thing as spiritual evil. I'm aware that in the rationalist West that makes me sound like a nutter. But... I'm comforted by the fact that in the majority world I sound like I'm speaking perfect sense. If you talk to the generals, and I've seen interviews with them, who had to go and do the peacekeeping work after the genocide in Rwanda, they will say they had no problem believing in God. Actually, a, a massive number of senior military men believe in God. If you ask them why, they would say it's because they've seen something that could only be described as the devil's work. No problem believing in God because I've seen the devil. Something so exaggerated and unhuman in its evil that you'd start to think there must be something beyond simply the people involved. What am I saying? I'm saying we need an, not just an example, but a saviour. Israel didn't just need a king who would live justly and rightly, they needed someone who would save them from Babylon. And this is what Jeremiah promises God will send. The coming king... W- 
would do what was just and right, and in doing so, he would set people free. He can do this because he's not merely human, but the Son of God himself. And here's where I get the big bucks. He's called the Lord, our righteous Saviour. I don't know if you noticed that. The name of this king is God. This comes up again and again in the prophecies before Christmas. The idea that a man will be born, and he will be called God. He is not merely human, he is the Lord, our righteous saviour or our righteousness. In other words, he's not merely a great man showing us how to live. This isn't me reading over reading this, this is how he's treated in Isaiah and in Jeremiah. Not merely a great man showing us how to live, he is God himself living that way on our behalf. When we cannot be perfect, he's perfect for us. You and I may be flawed, yet, Jeremiah predicted, that is okay, because God is good enough for both of us. Christmas is not merely about the birth of a baby, but the beginning of salvation. It is about God dropping into the territories of his enemies, governed and bound by death and darkness, sin and suffering, and setting about their liberation. If I can put it this way, for Jeremiah, the coming king, Christmas, is not so much about reindeer as Rambo. Someone who's parachuted in to actually rescue the people. When we worship at Christmas, we're proclaiming the start of deliverance for humanity. So then how should we live? What should this mean for us? I want to leave you with a final observation. There are differences between the two passages. right? You might expect that. Jeremiah gave this prediction, then he comes back later and says, no, it's still true, and what's more, it's true in a way you didn't even understand. And so in the final part, in the second uh, time he, he comes back to this, He develops it in this way. He says, Jerusalem will live in safety. In other words, God's people will live in safety. This is the name by which it shall be called. He's no longer talking about the Saviour himself. He's talking about the people he came to save. This is the thought I want to leave with you. Christmas is not just about Jesus coming and being great, although it is. It's about Jesus coming and being great to change us to be like him. Christmas should provoke an ethical response in us. Because it is God working in us. Christmas is about God's choice. He chose to come and show us how to live. He chose to come and set us free from sin and death and the devil. But he came to change us. And so let me finish with this thought. As we prepare for Christmas, as you prepare for Christmas, as you go through Advent, Be thankful to God. Be assured of his grace that loves each one of you. Be assured that it's not about you being good enough because he has been good enough on your behalf. He came as a saviour. It would be a terrible saviour who arrived and said, right now save yourselves. That's not how saviours work. But ask how I can be changed to be like him. As an Advent discipline, why not spend each morning before Christmas asking, my God, how would you have me behave like Jesus today? Whom can I show grace and love to? If you want to use the biblical language, make your name the Lord our righteousness. As well as his. Christmas 
is God's choice to teach us, to save us, and to change us through Jesus. Let's just take a moment of quiet and then we're going to sing a closing Advent hymn.